Chapter 39 of Small Souls by Louis Couperus. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A few mornings later, when Constance woke, she remembered that it was Saturday, and with the apprehension which had kept her nerves on the rack all the week long, she said to herself as she rose, This is the day, this is the day. She went to the letterbox again and again, almost hoping to find the last issue of the scurrilous paper there. She was afraid also lest Addie, before going to school or on coming home, should see it in the box and look at it to see what it was. She knew that van der Velke was thinking of it too, and that this was why he did not go out, and also kept coming down the stairs, as though accidentally, and passing through the hall with a glance at the glass pane of the letter-box. She went and sat in the drawing-room, looking out for the postman or for an errand-boy who might strike her as suspicious. The morning passed. Addie came home, and her nervous apprehension never left her. The afternoon passed, and she remained indoors, wandering through the hall, and always, always gazing at that letter-box. Nothing appeared through the little glass pane, and the whole day was one long apprehension, one incessant oppression. The next morning, Sunday, Constance again looked out of the window, but she had now made up her mind that nothing would come, and that there was nothing in the Dvarskaika. She stayed at home that day too, as it was raining hard, and she saw nobody. At half-past eight in the evening, she went to Mama Van Loer's in a cab with van der Velker and Addie, and Constance, the moment she entered, saw that there was a certain excitement among the members of the family, all of whom were present. Even Mama seemed uneasy about something, and she at once said to Constance, "'You were at Bertha's on Tuesday, child.' "'Yes.' "'Why didn't you ask me first, Connie?' Is a visit to Bertha such a very important matter, Mamma? No, no, said the old woman deprecatingly. Not that. But the old aunts arrived. How are you, Doreen and Christine? So nice of you to come. What do you say? asked Aunt Irina. Marie says, It's so nice of you to come, screamed Auntie Tina. "'Oh, ah, did she say so? "'Yes, yes, and who's that?' "'That's Constance,' said the old lady. "'Who? That's Marie's daughter,' screamed Auntie Tina. "'Marie's daughter. Whose daughter? Marie's? Bertha?' "'No, not Bertha. Gertrude. Gertrude,' yelled Auntie Tina. "'Oh, Gertrude,' said Auntie Rena, nodding her head. "'Oh, dear,' said Mrs. Van Loer, upset by the thought of the little daughter who had died at Boutenzor. "'Never mind, Mamma," said Constance. "'They'll never remember who I am. "'They're so obstinate, but they're so old. "'It makes me so sad to hear them always taking you for Gertrude.' Poor Gertrude. Come, Mamma, you mustn't mind. No, child. But, oh, why did you go to Bertha's on Tuesday? What harm did I do, Mamma? No harm, child. But, oh, dear, 
Good evening, Herman. Good evening, Lutcher. It was Uncle and Aunt Rivena, with their girls following behind, and Constance saw a look of pity in their eyes. I say, Constance, whispered Aunt Lot. Yes, Auntie. Does Mamma know about that horrid article? Constance turned pale. I don't think so, Auntie, but your sister Doreen must know. Aunt Rivena beckoned to Doreen, who was very fidgety. I say, Doreen, does Mamma know about that horrid article? No, Auntie, said Doreen, forgetting to say good evening to Constance. I kept coming in and looking at the letterbox. Today? asked Constance. Yes. What do you mean, today? A week ago, you mean? No, Mamma didn't see that article last week, but I was afraid about today. Today? Yes, today's article. Constance caught Doreen by the arm. Is there something in it today? Yes, Doreen whispered coldly. Didn't you know? Don't you know, Constance? asked Auntie Lot. No, I haven't had it. So you haven't read it, Constance? No. Well, it's just as well, child, said Auntie, as though relieved. Better not read it, eh? Horrid article. Scandalous child about you. Eh, Sulda, all those people. And it's so long ago, you and your husband. And he is your husband now. Eh, what I say is, leave her alone. Forgive and forget. Suda. But I tell you, people always love to correct about tempo dulu. It makes me sick when I think what people are. Doreen, have you that article? Do you think I carry it about with me? said Doreen irritably. Why are you angry with me, Doreen? I'm not angry, but when you give occasion. I give occasion fifteen years ago? No, on Tuesday last. What an idea of yours to go to Bertha's. I intend to do more than that, Doreen, and I can't help it if I don't share your awe for Bertha's days, at which you may meet all sorts of people. Doreen, one has so many unpleasant meetings in this world, said Constance haughtily. You, you don't know the world. Thank goodness for that. Then don't condemn me. You don't know why I am acting as I am. If you only kept to yourself. I wanted to keep to myself. You give people occasion. Yes, now. I give them occasion now. Oh, children, said Auntie, don't quarrel. There's Susa enough with that horrid article. Gerrit arrived. I thought I'd just look in, Mamma. How's Adeline? She's well. The doctor called this afternoon. She's very well indeed. Oh, she doesn't upset herself for a small affair like that. The big fair man laughed nervously, boisterously filling the whole room with his loose-limbed strength. Then he went up to Constance. Connie, he whispered, I'm so furious, so furious. I haven't read it. Haven't you? Haven't you? Then don't. But what do they say? Nothing. Don't read it. But she hardly listened to Gerrit, for she now saw van der Velke and Paul standing in a corner in the back drawing room. 
She moved in their direction. She saw that van der Velke, with his back turned to the other room, was reading something, screened by a curtain, while Paul was warning him anxiously, Come, give it to me quick, van der Velke. Constance was behind them. Paul, tell me that article. The scoundrels, the scoundrels, van der Velke was hissing. Henry, have you it? Give it to me. No, Constance, Paul implored her. Don't read it, don't read it. Give it to me, Henry. I want to read it myself first. And he cursed as he read. The damned scoundrels. But it's not true. It didn't happen like that. But what is it they say? Constance demanded furiously. Paul took her by the arm and led her into the little boudoir where their father's portrait hung. Be quiet, Constance. Please, please, don't read it. What good will it do you? All that dirty language, all that vulgarity. It's filthy, it's filthy. And is there nothing we can do? No, no, for God's sake, no, Paul begged, as though preferring to hush up everything. Everyone will have forgotten it in ten days' time. Is there nothing we can do? What do you want to do? Paul asked, changing his tone harshly. Surely you wouldn't sue the cad for libel? No, no, she said, startled and terrified. Well, what then? Keep quiet. Don't read it. Don't upset yourself about it. But van der Velke came up to them. He was purple. There was no restraining him. I'm going to the fellow. For God's sake, van der Velke. Uncle Reuvener joined them. What are you doing in here? Oh, yes, that rag. It's disgraceful. It's disgraceful. I want to read it, cried Constance. No, they all three exclaimed. Don't read it. Don't let Mamma notice, Uncle Reuvener warned them, and he went away, full of suppressed excitement. But they remained in the boudoir. The portraits looked down upon them. Oh, my God! Constance began sobbing, and she looked up at the portrait. Papa! Papa! Oh, my God! Hush, Constance! Let me read it! No! Adolphine appeared in the doorway. She said nothing, but realised what they were talking about and turned away and they heard Adolphine say aloud in a harder voice to Uncle Reuvener, It's their own fault. Van der Velke flared up. No longer able to master himself, he spun round to the door. Paul tried to hold him back, but it was too late, and on the threshold, with his face close to Adolphine's, he roared, Why is it my own fault? Why? asked Adolphine furiously remembering the lofty tone which he had adopted to her after the quarrel of the two boys. Why, you should have remained in Brussels. Adolphine, cried van der Velke, purple in the face, seething, roaring, with every nerve quivering. You're a woman, and an ill-mannered woman, and so you can allow yourself to say anything you please to a man. But if your husband shares your opinion that I ought to have remained in Brussels... He's only got to tell me so, in your name or his own. Then I'll send him my seconds. Van Satsuma came up at that moment. Then I'll send you my seconds, van der Velke repeated, blazing. 
for God's sake, don't, my dear fellow, cried Van Satsuma, frightened to death. And Adolphine began to clasp her hands together. She too was frightened and took refuge in a feeble exhibition of wounded vanity. He says I'm ill-mannered. He says I'm ill-mannered. The hound. The cad. I have to swallow everything. Everyone says just what he likes to me. She was now really crying into her handkerchief. Everything in the two drawing-rooms seemed in one great ferment of excitement. On all sides there were quick, hushed conversations, whispered words, nervous glances among the brothers and sisters and their juniors, the nephews and nieces. Not a single quiet group had been formed. The card-tables remained untouched, and there was no one at the table in the conservatory where the children's round games were played. Herman, Mamma called out, almost querulously. Aren't you going to start a rubber? Yes, do come along, said Auntie Lot to Roivena. Ayo, shall we have a game? Come on, who's going to play? You, Satsuma, come along. Tutti, come along. Cuts for partners. Come, Paul, do. No, Aunt, I won't play, thanks. Oh, it's difficult this evening, said Auntie. Van Nagel and Bertha not yet here, eh? Come on, ayo, now, let's play. Ah, there are Carol and Cato. Why are you so late, eh? Ayo, then cut for partners. Let's have a rubber. And Auntie at once enlisted Carol and Cato, refused to let them go, forced matters, insisted on having a nice, quiet, friendly rubber, as at all the usual family groups. But Cato at once noticed the excitement infecting everybody in both the big rooms with restlessness, and catching sight of Adolphine, she managed before cutting to escape Auntie Lot and ask, Why, Adolphine, what are you crying for? Are you upset about anything? The hound, the cad, did he want us to challenge my husband in addition? Challenge him? cried the terrified Cato. A regular duel? No, the brothers and sisters will never consent to that. There's too much being talked and written about the family as it is, she whispered, written and printed. And Cato's whining words bore evidence to the tragic alarm that fluttered through her sleek, broad-bosomed respectability while her owl's eyes opened rounder and wider than ever. But Auntie Lot came to fetch Cato and dragged her by the arm to the card table. The rubber was made up, Auntie, Carol, Cato and Tutti, but they none of them paid attention to their cards, which fell on the table, one after the other, without the least effort of intelligence on the part of the players, as though obeying the laws of some weird and fantastic game of bridge. Auntie was constantly trying to rough with spades, though clubs were trumps. Oh, what's Cassian? said Auntie. Carol, said Cato excitedly, as the eldest brother, you must interfere and stop that duel. I? Thank you. Not if I know it. You must, Carol. You are the eldest brother. Of course, Van Nagel and she pronounced the name with a certain reverence, is the husband of your eldest sister. But if he, if Van, reverentially, 
but Nahal refuses to interfere. Then it's your duty, Carol, as the eldest brother, to stop that duel. It won't come off, said Tootie good-humouredly. Massa, brothers-in-law, don't fight, said Auntie Lot. But Adolphine shouldn't have behaved like that. Very wrong of Adolphine. But it's sad, all the same, very sad for Adolphine. All those articles, whined Cato. They upset her. She's crying. And it's anything but pleasant for Van Nagel, don't you think, Uncle? This to Uncle Roivener, who was standing behind her. It's beastly, it's beastly, said Uncle. They ought never to have come and lived here. It was very wrong of Marie to encourage them. Oh, well, Herman, said Auntie. You must remember she's the mother. Just for that reason. Oh, Papa, said Tootie wearily. That's old Perkara. Nothing but Korek in Tempo Dulu in Holland, said Auntie crossly. Well, Auntie, said Cato, taking offence, they are not always so moral in the East. But there's not so much talk in Java as here, said Auntie angrily. Oh, I dare say they do some talking there too. But not so spitefully, said Auntie very angrily, and finding her Dutch words with great difficulty. Not, not so cruelly, so cruelly. They ought never to have come and lived here, Uncle Roivener repeated, and he fussed off to Van Satsuma, whose eyes were still filled with terror at the possible duel. Look, Mama, said Tutti, winking towards Auntie Tina and Auntie Rina, who were sitting side by side in a corner of the big drawing-room, each with her knitting in her lap. Those two are quite happy. They don't bother about all these matters. They don't know anything. In Holland, said Auntie crossly. But in the East, Cato at once broke in, spitefully. The rubber was spoilt, for Auntie, in her present state of irritation, could no longer see the cards in her hand. The old Indian lady felt that there was hostility to Constance among the relations, and, with the kindliness of a nature used to the little Indian scandals, she thought it exaggerated. Moreover, Cato's Dutch arrogance in speaking of the East had put her quite out of temper, and she flung her cards on the table and said, Suda, I won't play with you any more. And without further explanation, she broke up the table and walked straight to Constance, who sat talking to Paul in a corner. I'm coming to sit with you a bit, Constance. Do, Auntie. What I want to say to you is, don't mind about it. Shake it off your cold clothes. But what does it matter? Horrible article. But I tell you, shake it off your cold clothes. And Auntie talked away, suddenly lighting on all sorts of queer Dutch words and expressions told Constance of horrible articles in India which people out there had shaken off their cold clothes. At this moment, Bertha, Van Nagel and Marianne arrived, very late. Mamma at once went up to them. The people in the two rooms now made some attempt to adopt an attitude, and their excitement cooled down. 
but it struck them all that Van Nachel looked exceedingly tired, Bertha pale, and Marianne as though she had been crying. Her eyes were specks under her swollen lids. They exchanged vague, almost doleful good evenings, giving a hand here, a kiss there. After all the agitation, a gloom descended upon the family. The voices sank into a whisper, and through the whispering, suddenly the voices of the two old aunts sounded piercingly as they spoke to the Van Nagels. Yes, yes, I remember you. I know you. Good evening, Van Nagel. Good evening, aunt. Good evening, Tootie. Yes, yes, I know you. You're Tootie, Van Nagel's wife. And who's that? That's my girl, auntie, Marianne, and I'm Bertha. Oh, yes, that's Amelice, Auntie Tina screamed in Auntie Rena's ear in a moment of sudden and not yet perfect lucidity. That's Tootie's daughter, Emelice. No, auntie, Emily is married. What do you say? Is she dead? No, screamed Aunt Tina. Florcha, Florcha is married. This is Emelice. Oh, I see. Good evening, Emelice. A smile lit up gloomy features here and there. The aunts never knew anyone properly, were always a little muddled among all those nephews and nieces of a later generation, and, as a rule, nobody troubled for more than a moment to remind them of the real names. With the stubbornness of extremely old women, they continued to cling to their confusion of generations, persons and names. Constance, sitting beside Paul, watched Bertha. In an importunate obsession to immerse herself in what she, at that moment, called her own disgrace, especially as that disgrace had been stamped in print, she had done nothing but ask Paul, Let me read it! And Paul had done nothing but say, No, Constance, don't read it! Constance now saw by the faces of Van Nachel, Bertha and Marianne that they knew about it and had read it. All three said how do you do to her in a very cold tone. Van Nachel was at once asked by Mamma to make up one of the tables. The old woman, like Constance, had read nothing, knew nothing certain, but a word seized here and there had alarmed her, had worried her, and she felt very unhappy, as if on the verge of tears. She noticed in her children, as it were for the first time, something strange and hard, in the nervous excitement of that evening, something, it is true, which at once hushed and calmed down when she approached, but which left a strained feeling behind it, a lack of harmony which she did not understand. Was it because of that scurrilous paper, or did they disapprove of Constance's going to Bertha's on her day? The old woman did not know, but never had a Sunday evening passed with such difficulty, and yet what was it all about? An article, a visit, an article, a visit. She endeavoured despairingly to look upon these things as small and meaningless, as nothing. But it was no use. The question of the visit was very important, an undoubted blunder on Constance's part, and the article, heavens, the article, was, though she herself had not read it, a disgrace, raking up the scandal of years ago, which soiled and defiled all her children, all, all her nearest and dearest. 
No, these things were not insignificant. They were great and important things in their lives. What, what could be more important than what might happen through that visit to Bertha? And, heavens, a scurrilous article! Bertha refused to play, declaring she hadn't the head for it, and though she had at first deliberately avoided Constance, she now seemed constantly, almost fatally, to be moving nearer her, restlessly, unable to keep her seat amid the excitement which once more slowly took hold of them all, after their first attempt at calmness from respect for their brother-in-law, the cabinet minister. But Constance went on talking to Paul, and, in her turn, avoided her sister's glances, until at last Bertha, as though unable to keep it in any longer, sat down on a chair beside her and said, Constance, well, Vanagelis, Vanagelis what? Vanagelis, very much put out. I can't understand how he can play bridge. What is he put out about? About you. About me. Yes, about you. I'm sorry, Bertha, said Constance coolly. What have I done wrong? Of course, it's not your fault about those articles. But the first was exceedingly unpleasant for Van Nagel. And the second I haven't read, said Constance coldly. No, Paul broke in. I advised Constance not to read it. And I don't mean to read it. It has ceased to interest me. Is Van Nagel put out by that article about me? He's put out by the visit. The visit? The visit you paid me on Tuesday. Is Van Nagel put out by a visit which I paid you on Tuesday? Asked Constance, very contemptuously, in surprise. You ought not to have come on my day. I ought not to have. Don't be angry, Constance. I have had such a scene with my husband as it is. Don't be angry, for heaven's sake. Don't misunderstand me. I am full of sympathy for you. You are my sister, and I am fond of you. But that doesn't alter the fact that you were wrong, that you ought not to have come on my day. Why did you do it? I am so glad to see you at any other time. But just on an at-home day, when you risked meeting, well, just the people whom you did meet, Mrs. Van Eilenburg, the Van den Heuvelsteins. Why did you do it? What made you do it? So, I am not fit to appear at my sister's at-home day. Please, Constance, don't take it like that. I am not unsympathetic. We even had a talk once. Constance laughed aloud. Once, she said, once. Life is very busy, Constance, but I am always glad to see you. Only, only not on your days. It's not my fault. No, it's mine. Mrs. Van Eilenburg is a niece of de Staffeler. It was the first time that his name had been mentioned between them. The Van den Heuvelsteins are his friends. So, Constance, you understand for yourself. I told you on Tuesday, Bertha, I'm going to make my fifteen years count. Constance, don't attempt impossibilities. What's an impossibility? Don't think only of yourself. Think of us. Think of Van Nagel, of his position. 
You make it impossible for him, if you insist on. Coming to your at-home days? For goodness sake, Constance, don't be angry. It is impossible. What is? For you to... What? To force the position. When Mamma spoke to us eight months ago about you coming to The Hague, Van Nagel at once said that our house was open to you and your husband, but that you must not push and assert yourselves. So that was the condition. It was not a condition, Constance. It was merely advice, given in your own interest. And in yours. Very well, in ours too. People come to my days just because of my husband's position and connections. People who are relations and friends of de Stoffler's. People who have never forgiven you and never will. Can't you see that for yourself, Constance? Must I explain it to you? Bertha, I never had any desire to push or to assert myself. Then what makes you? What makes me? And it was as though Constance was searching for the answer. What but you? All of you? Don't be unreasonable, Constance. What else did I want but to come and live here quietly at The Hague, and to see all of you again, my brothers, my sisters, your children, without ever dreaming of pushing myself? Who first spoke of pushing? You, you and your husband, Bertha. Constance. Who first spoke about the court, Bertha? Adolphine. Please, Constance, please. I never thought, Bertha, of getting presented at court, but now I shall, at the first occasion that offers. Constance, and Bertha wrung her hands, it's impossible. Yes, it is possible, and I mean to do it. Constance, how can you wish to defy people's opinions like that? Because of those very people. I don't understand you, Constance, or my friends. Exactly, because of your friends. All our family, because of our family. Wait a bit, Constance, I don't understand you. I don't know what you mean to say. But just consider, just consider. You are not only making yourself impossible, but you are making us impossible. My husband, my house, our position, our children. Nonsense. It's not nonsense, Constance. Do you want to make me regret that we yielded to Mamma's wish to have you here again, near her, among us all? No, Bertha, but I could no longer remain, for the sake of people, for the sake of the family, in some obscure corner in which I remained for years in Brussels, where I was disowned by all of you as a disgrace. I can't do it, Bertha, I can't do it. I could do it as far as I'm concerned, but I can't, because of my son. He is a child still. He is growing older every day. I see, Bertha, that I ought either to have stayed away from you all, without indulging my modest yearnings and simple wishes, or else to have rehabilitated myself at once, in the eyes of all the Hague. Constance! But it's not too late, it's not too late to repair my mistake. I can still take steps towards my rehabilitation. And I ask, I demand that rehabilitation of you, Bertha, in particular. Of me? Yes, Bertha, of you, in particular, 
just because you are the sister whose husband not only occupies a high position, but also possesses more connections than any of us in the sets that used to be our fathers. Just for that reason, Bertha, I demand my rehabilitation of you. If I'm not to be allowed to live quietly in a corner at The Hague, surrounded by a little family affection, if those simple wishes are to be discussed and criticised, if they are the cause that my unfortunate past, my fault, my sin, whatever you like to call it, is raked up not only in dirty little scurrilous rags, but also at the gossipy tea-parties and clubs at The Hague, then I will come out of my corner, then I will be rehabilitated, not for my own sake alone, but mainly for my son's, and I demand my rehabilitation of you. It is possible that you don't care for my sisterly love, but, as a condition of that love, I now demand my rehabilitation. But good heavens, Constance, what can I, what can I do for you? What can you do for me? Receive me on your at-home days. Make it clear to your husband that you must receive me, that you can't act otherwise towards a sister than receive her, now that she has once, in an evil hour, returned to The Hague. Not hesitate any longer to introduce me to whoever it may be in your drawing-room, she exclaimed, with her dark eyes quivering, her every nerve trembling, as she sat between Bertha and Paul. Her sister was almost panting with suppressed excitement and helplessness, while her brother listened in dismay to her demands, which appeared to him, the blasé, world-worn sage, to contain no philosophy whatever. And Constance went on, "'What can you do for me? Look upon it as only natural, and try to make your friends look upon it as natural, that you should receive me. I should be very glad to do all that you ask of me, Constance.' If there was not the objection that we see and always have seen relations and friends of Dostophilus, isn't your sister worth the single effort to you? I can't choose between my husband and my sister. Bertha, said Constance, almost weeping with excitement and nervousness. Bertha, try, for heaven's sake, try to do what I ask. It's for my child. It's not for me. It's for my son. He will have to take up a career which I, which I made impossible for van der Velke. Do it for my son's sake. God in his heaven, must I go on my knees to you? Do it, I beseech you, Bertha. Try, try to do it. Speak to van Nagel. Constance, I will speak to van Nagel. But how can you ever hope, not that we, but that other people will forgive, will forget? Dostophila's relations, Dostophila's old friends. Yes, I do hope it, and if you help me, Bertha, if you help me, it will not be so utterly impossible. How do I know that Mrs. van Eilenberg or the van den Heuvelsteins will ever come to us again after meeting you at my house? So, you decline, cried Constance, flaring up. So you refuse. Constance, I should like to do what you ask. There is nothing I should like better. But people, but van Nagel. Then let me speak to van Nagel. Constance, let me speak to van Nagel, I say. Don't make a scene. I shan't make a scene. 
but let me speak to Van Nagel. I see your husband is getting up. He has finished playing. Tell him I want to speak to him. Let Van der Velke be present at our conversation. Paul, you must be there too. But Constance, why, why speak to him? I am so afraid Mamma will notice. No, Mamma will see nothing. I want to give her as little pain as possible. But I must speak to your husband in your presence and Van der Velke's. I must, Bertha, and I will. Call your husband and we'll go into the boudoir. She rose trembling. She was shaking all over, and, as she almost fell where she stood, a sudden thought arose in her and paralysed all her energies. Why am I talking like this, thinking like this, wishing this? How small I am, how small my conduct is. Really, what does it all matter? People, and what they think, and what they write and say. Is that life? Is that all? Is there nothing else? But another thought gave her fresh zest, fresh courage. She remembered the conversation which she had had with her husband a little while ago. She remembered his reproach that she was not thinking of her son, that she was doing nothing for her son, that she would let herself take root in the shade, continue to vegetate in her disgrace, in her corner, withdrawn into herself in her own rooms, would continue to sit, cursing her luck in her Kirchhoff lawn. No, she felt fresh zest, fresh courage, and she almost pushed Bertha as she repeated, Call your husband. Paul, will you please call van der Velke and ask him to come to the boudoir? She could hardly walk. She was pale as a corpse, and her black eyes quivered. She went alone to the little boudoir. There was no one there. Decanters, glasses, cakes and sandwiches were put out, as usual. She looked up at her father's portrait. Oh, what an ugly daub it seemed to her, hard with the hard expressionless eyes and all that false glitter on the yellow and white stars of the decorations. It stared at her like an implacable spectre, grim and unforgiving. It stared at her almost as though it wished to speak. Go! Go away, go out of my house of honour, of greatness and decency. Go, go away, go out of my town. Go away from me and mine. Go, it was you who murdered me. You caused my long illness. You caused my death. You, you, go. The little room stifled her. She would have liked to run away, but van der Velke and Paul entered. "'What do you want to do, Constance?' asked van der Velke. "'To speak to van Nagel.' "'Not an explanation.' "'I don't know. He's annoyed at my visit of Tuesday last.' "'Annoyed?' van der Velke seethed. "'Annoyed at your visit?' "'For God's sake, van der Velke,' cried Paul, terrified. "'Don't always fly out like that. Do remember.' "'Annoyed?' phoned van der Velke. "'Annoyed?' "'Henry, please,' cried Constance. "'I thank you for resenting the insults offered to your wife, "'but restrain yourself. "'He'll be here in a minute. "'Restrain yourself, for Addy's sake.' "'Restrain myself! Restrain myself!' "'shouted van der Velke like a madman. "'The door opened. "'Van Nagel and Bertha entered. 
Do you want to speak to me, Constance? asked Van Nagel. I should very much like to speak to you for a moment, Van Nagel, said Constance, while Paul made signs to Van der Velke as though begging him to control himself. Bertha tells me that you are sorry that I called at your house on Tuesday, on her reception day. Constance, Van Nagel began, cautiously, trying to be diplomatic. I... Forgive me for interrupting you, Van Nagel. I ask you kindly. Let me finish and say what I have to say. It is simply this. I regret that I went to your house on Bertha's at-home day without first asking if I should be welcome. I admit it was a mistake. I oughtn't to have done it. I ought first to have spoken to the two of you, as I am glad to be speaking to you now, Van Nagel, to explain my position and my wishes, in the hope that you will show some indulgence to your wife's sister and consent to help her fulfil a natural desire. You see, Van Nagel, when I arrived here eight months ago, I had no other thought than to live here quietly, in my corner, with a little affection around me a little affection from my brothers and sisters, whom I had not seen for so long. It is true, I had no particular claim to that affection, but when I felt within myself a wish, a longing, a yearning for Holland, for The Hague, for all of you, I cherished the illusion that there would be something, just a little, of that feeling in my brothers and sisters. I don't know how far I was mistaken. I won't go into that now. Bertha has just told me that she feels to me as to a sister, and I accept that, gratefully. But, Nachel, I cannot expect that you, my brother-in-law, should have any sort of family feeling for me. But, as Bertha's husband, I ask you, I beg of you, try to be a brother to me, help me. Don't resent that I paid you a visit without notice, and, in so doing, shocked and surprised you. "'But allow me, allow me, I ask it as a favour, Van Nagel, for my son's sake. "'Allow me, in your house first of all, to try and attain, "'to attain a sort of rehabilitation in the eyes of our acquaintances, "'in the eyes of all the Hague. "'I stand here entreating you, Van Nagel. "'Grant me this and help me. "'Allow me to come on your wife's days, "'even though I do meet friends and relations of the Staffelers.' Good heavens, Van Nagel, what harm, what earthly harm can it do you to exercise your authority and protect me a little and defend me against mean and petty slanders? If you show some magnanimity and help me to make people, to make people forget what I did fifteen, fifteen years ago, they will drop their slanders and I shall be rehabilitated in your house, Van Nagel just because of your high position and the consideration which you enjoy and your many connections and your power to carry out what you set your mind on. Van Nagel, if only you would help me, if not for my own sake, for my son's. It's to help him later in his career, which he will take up at his father's wish and his grandparents, the same career as his father's which I ruined. I am asking so little of you, Van Nagel, and because you are you, it means so little for you to consent to my request. Van Nagel, Papa helped you in the old days. I ask you now to help me, his child and your wife's sister, 
Let me come to Bertha's receptions. You know Mrs. Van Eilenburg. Help me to prepare people for my intention, which they were really the first to suggest, to be presented at court and ask us this winter, once, just once, to one of your official dinners. She stood before her brother-in-law, pale and trembling, almost like a supplicant, and while she besought him, the thought flashed through her mind. What am I begging for? How base and small I am making myself! Dear God, how terribly small! And is that seriously life? Is that the only life? Or is there something else? She looked around her. While she stood in front of Van Nachel, Bertha had sunk into a chair, trembling with nervous excitement, while Van der Velke and Paul, as though in expectation, listened breathlessly to Constance's words, which came in broken jerks from her throat. Then at last, slowly, as though he was speaking in the chamber, Van Nachel's voice made itself heard, softly, with its polite, rather affected and pompous intonation. "'Constance, I shall certainly do my best to satisfy all your wishes, all your requests. I will help you as far as I can, if you really think that I can be of use to you. Certainly I owe a great deal to papa, and, if later, I can possibly do anything for your son, I assure you, and you too, van der Velke, I shall not fail to do so. I give you my hand on it, my hand. I shall certainly, gladly, with all my heart, help Addy in the career which he selects. You may be sure of that. But, Constance, what you ask me so frankly to, to invite you and van der Velke to one of our dinners, at which you would meet people who really, really would have no attraction for you. Oh, you wouldn't care for it, Constance, I assure you, you really wouldn't care for it. And if you want my honest opinion, honestly, as between brother and sister, I should say to you, candidly, Constance, don't insist on coming to our official dinners. They're no amusement. They're an awful bore sometimes. Boring, aren't they, Bertha? Very tedious, very tedious sometimes. And the receptions at which you are always likely to meet people you wouldn't care for. Well, if you take my advice. Is that all, Van Nagel, that you have to say? When I bear my soul to you here, between brothers and sisters, and without any diplomatic varnish, ask you, as far as you can, to rehabilitate me in your house. But, Constance, what a word! What a word to use! It's the right word, Van Nagel. There is no other word. I want my rehabilitation. Constance, really, I am prepared to help you in all you ask, and whatever is in my power. But Van der Velke flared up. Van Nagel, please keep those non-committal expressions for the chamber. My wife asked you, and now I ask you, will you receive us this winter in a way that will make your set, which was once ours, take us up, even though we rub shoulders with the Stufflers, nephews and nieces, and even though people talk about what happened fifteen years ago. Van der Velke, said Van Nachel, nettled, the expressions I choose to employ in the chamber are my own affair. Answer my question. Henry, Constance implored. Answer my question, insisted Van der Velke, full of suppressed rage, 
feeling ready to smash everything to pieces. Well, then, no, said Van Nagel haughtily. No, it's impossible. I have too many attacks to endure as it is, in the chamber, in the press, everywhere, and I can't do what you ask. You have made yourself impossible to our Hague society, you and your wife, the wife of your former chief, and it's simply impossible that I should receive you in my house on the same footing as my friends, acquaintances and colleagues. That is no reason why we should not continue to be brothers and sisters. And do you think I would wish for or accept your brotherliness on those terms? Then refuse it, cried Van Nachel, himself losing his temper and forgetting to pick his words. Refuse it, and all the better for me. I shall be only too glad to have nothing more to do with you. Your wife compromised me the other day by coming to Bertha's reception as if it were a matter of course. Van der Velke clenched his fists. My wife, he echoed, compromised you by coming to... Van der Velke, Paul entreated. Yes, said Van Nachel, she did. Don't you dare, cried Van der Velke. Don't you dare to criticise my wife's actions in any way. Your wife compromised us, Van Nagel repeated. But van der Velke let himself go. Unable to restrain himself any longer, he made a rush for van Nagel, raised his hand. Take that, he shouted, crimson with rage, utterly beside himself. But Paul flung himself between them and seized van der Velke's arm. Bertha burst into hysterics, uttered scream after scream. Constance almost fainted. The two men stood facing each other, no longer drawing-room people, blazing now with mutual hatred. "'I am at your disposal, whenever you please,' said van der Velke. "'Of course you are,' yelled van Nagel, his eyes starting out of his head, his cheeks scarlet as though he had actually received the blow. "'Of course you are.' You have nothing to lose. You can afford to behave like a quarrelsome puppy, hitting people, fighting, duelling. And, turning on his heel, quivering with rage and shame, he disappeared from their eyes through the door that opened on the landing. The door of the drawing-room opened. Doreen, Adolphine and Cateau had heard the angry words, had heard Bertha's sobs and screams. They went to Bertha's assistance, while Paul urged Constance, who was half-fainting, to go into the drawing-room. She staggered to her feet. "'My God!' she cried. "'Henry! Henry! What have you done?' Mrs. Van Loer came up with Aunt Reuvener. "'My child! My child!' Constance was clinging to Paul like a madwoman, and kept on repeating— "'My God! Henry! Henry! What have you done?' Addy came up. "Mamma, "'Addy! Addy! My boy! My God! My God! What has papa done?' Mamma Van Lower dropped into a chair, sobbing. But at that moment, the two old aunts, sitting all alone in the second drawing-room, looked up. On those evenings they used generally to doze, hardly recognising the various relations, and to wait until the cakes and lemonade were handed round, going home after they had had them. 
But this evening, sitting quietly in their chairs, looking quietly with eyes askance at the people talking and playing their cards and uttering their harsh judgments, they felt the usual peaceful calmness to be absent from Marie's family Sunday. There was something the matter, something was happening, they did not know what, but it suddenly seemed as though Aunt Tina, when she saw her younger sister, Mrs. Van Loer, bursting into sobs, became very lucid. For, opening wide and clear her screwed-up eyes, she said to Auntie Rena very loudly, with the sharp tone of a woman hard of hearing, to whom her own voice sounds soft and almost whispering, Rena, Rena, Marie's crying. What? Is she crying, Tina? Yes, she's crying. What is she crying for? No doubt, Rena, because one of the children's dead. Dead? Yes, Rena. Oh, how sad. Is she crying? Yes, she's crying. She's crying, Rena, about Gertrude. About whom? About Gertrude. About Gertrude. Auntie Rena began to scream. She's dead, Rena. Is she dead? Yes, the poor little thing died at Bautenzorg. Oh, how sad. Is Marie still crying, Tina? Yes, she's still crying, Rena. But then who's that one, Tina? Who, Rena? That one, the girl standing beside her. She's crying. She's crying too. Beside her? Yes, can't you see? She's crying too. Yes, yes, screamed Tina, quite lucid now. I know her, Rena. I know her quite well, quite well. Then who is it? Is it Bertha? No, Rena, Auntie Tina screamed, gradually more and more shrilly, always thinking that she was whispering in her deaf sister's ear. It's not Bertha. It's not Bertha. But I know her. I know her. Then who is she? Auntie Rena screamed in her turn. I'll tell you who she is. I'll tell you who she is. It's Constance, yelled Auntie Rena. Who? Constance. Constance? Yes, Constance. Constance? Yes, Constance. The bad one, screamed Auntie Rena. Yes, Rena, the bad one, Rena. She's a wicked woman, Rena, a wicked woman. She has a lover. A lover? Yes, Rena, can you understand her being here? Can you understand that she's not ashamed? Can you understand her showing herself? Yes, Rena, she's a wicked woman. She's, she's, what is she, Tina? She's, she's a trollop, Rena, Auntie Tina yelled shrilly. A common trollop, a trollop. Christine, cried Mrs. Vandeloa. Christine, Doreen, and she stood up and tottered with outstretched arms towards the two old sisters. But there was a loud scream and a laugh that cut into everybody like a knife. Constance had fainted in Paul's arms. The boy, Addy, looked round with a haughty glance. He had heard everything, as had van der Velke, who stood listening apprehensively at the door of the boudoir. 
The son saw his father's deathly pale face staring like a mask. He saw the horror of his grandmother and of all his uncles and aunts. He now saw his mother prostrate in a chair, her head hanging back like a corpse, and his boyish lips, with their faint shading of down, curved into a scornful smile as he said, "'It's all about nothing!' Translator's Notes Suda, enough of, have done with. Correct tempo dulu, to rake up old times. Susa, fuss, unpleasantness. Ayo, hello. Cassian, bad luck. Masa, oh, nonsense. Perkara, business. Shake it off your cold clothes. Aunt Roivener here perpetrates the blunder common among half-caste ladies, of mixing up two separate Dutch proverbs. End of chapter 39 End of Small Souls by Louis Couperus Read by Phil Benson in Sydney, Australia The story of the Small Souls continues in the second book of the quartet, The Later Life.